Hello and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your well-being, including interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my five-minute food facts series. I'm Amanda Hayes, your host, a lawyer turned nutritionist with a deep curiosity about well-being. I'm learning as much as I can about living a healthy, active and fulfilling life and sharing what I learn with you on this podcast. Before I introduce today's guests, I will mention that although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in my podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure or prevent injuries or medical conditions and is not a substitute for advice from your own health professionals. Today I am here with Kaki Okumura, Japanese lifestyle blogger and creator of Kakikata Space, her gorgeous blog. I came across Kaki's articles in the Medium Daily Digest and I was immediately drawn to the beautiful illustrations in her articles that she does herself. I'll leave it to Kaki to tell us about her blog. Kaki, thank you very much for coming on Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast and it's a real pleasure to have you here today. So I'd like to start our discussion by talking a little bit about your background. I understand you've had the benefit of both a Western and a Japanese upbringing. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, where did you spend your childhood? Of course. I guess it's kind of complicated, but maybe not really. Um, I'm, I was born in Dallas, Texas, but um, both of my parents are full Japanese. So I was very much raised in a Japanese household. Um, I was in Dallas until I was um, seven. Then I moved to New York, but not in the city. I was a bit, um, I was around Westchester, which is a bit north of that um, area. Mm -hmm. um, and I was there until sixth grade. And then my parents decided that they wanted me to, or wanted our family, not just me, to come back to Japan. So we moved back, um, I think it was, 2010 and yeah so I spent middle school and high school uh in Japan but I didn't go to a normal Japanese school I went to a international school which is basically for a lot of uh yeah basically for a lot of kids who have parents who move around a lot move to different countries but they want to get yeah. an American uh, education so I did have yeah so I was living in Japan but I went to American school and did you speak Japanese at home with your family? Uh, good question. So when I would speak English with my siblings, I think um, our English is better than a Japanese, although we're bilingual. Um, but with my parents, it would always be with Japanese. With extended family, it's always Japanese. And when you were at the international school in Japan, I assume the medium of instruction there was English is that correct yeah um everything was basically in English I did take a Japanese class just because and the Japanese class is for people who are native level so um it was a way to yeah. make sure that I could read and write um and keep that up you're now in Tokyo do you live there full time or did you go there and get trapped there during COVID or what's the story? Um, yeah, I was, well, I thought I'd be in New York um, for a bit longer, but uh, obviously Corona happened and it was, it was around March or April 
things were at the time is feeling very scary. So I decided to move back to yeah. Japan. I thought I'd only be here for the summer thinking, hey, I'll calm down in the US, then I'll go back. But um, the situation has not calmed down as I hoped. And it's October. So I'm still in Japan. Um, but my sisters, they went back to the US to go back to school. So mm -hmm. um, yeah, that's it now. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, it's a bit tricky, I think, because it's hard to move between countries. So it does mean that families are spending more time apart than they probably otherwise would, yeah. which can be, be tough. I, I know about that on a personal level because my husband lives in Hong Kong. Oh. So um, normally he would travel back and forth frequently, but it's been a lot harder this year. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so, Kaki, I wonder, do you feel more aligned to one culture than the other? Do you, or do you feel a real mix? and Or does it depend where you are, for example? Um, I think it definitely depends on where I am. When I'm in the US, I can't help but think, like, I see all these parts of me that are super Japanese. But when I come back to, when I come back to Tokyo, there are parts of me that are, like, very American and it's the parts yeah. that stand out. So, you know, any country I am, I feel like that person who's not supposed to be there a little, you know, um, just a little different. <laughs> mm, I imagine that could be quite hard to navigate at times. Other friends of mine with similar upbringings have told me that their location and the local culture of where they are impacts the way they dress. Do you find that? Um. I think I, I think I do dress differently. I try not to let it affect me. So in a weird way, I'm like very aware that, so if I'm in Japan and it's summer, it's really hot, but a lot of Japanese women won't wear short shorts. Um, and mm -hmm. then I'll like, I'll have my shorts on and I'll be like very aware that most Japanese people don't do this. So it's, but then I'll think, but then I think there are moments where I'd be like, okay, maybe I'll just wear long pants anyways. Um, so I do think I, I'm very conscious of it. It's not like I don't notice it, but sometimes I'm like, I just want to fight it, you know? Um, yeah. Cause I'm not sure if it's like trying to conform to bigger majority or um, I don't know what's going on there, but <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I asked that question because on one hand you could think, oh, your clothes are trivial, but on the other, it, it's quite informative, I think, because whether you choose to adapt how you dress or not, you're certainly aware of it. Yeah. So, But anyway, on to the main part of our discussion today, your interest in health and well-being and your beautiful blog, which I mentioned a little bit earlier. Thank you. You say that you have used the lessons that you've learned from your experience in both the Japanese and Western upbringings um, to create a philosophy around wellness and health. Yeah. And you, before we go into what that is, you say you did that to help yourself. So what do you mean when you say help yourself? Yeah, so just to get more personal into my life, I used to be very overweight when I was young. Um, I just grew up as an overweight kid. And and because I spent a lot of my time in the US, they, I wouldn't wanna blame it on just being in the US, but the lifestyle I had there made it very difficult to 
um, be mm. healthy. And moving to Japan changed a lot of that. But I say help myself because even when, so in one way, it could be a sense weight loss. But even when I moved to Japan, at first, I lost like a lot of weight. Um, Japan is a very thin, lean culture, or they put a lot mm. of pressure on that. And so I felt that pressure a lot. And I lost a lot of weight. And I got really, um, I became really focused and obsessed with like, how much I ate, did I exercise that day, there's a lot of feelings of shame and guilt around that. And I lost a lot of weight really quickly. And um, thankfully, I never reached a point where it was really bad, but I did find myself feeling like I couldn't go to social events. I felt very uncomfortable around holidays, just eating in front of other people. Um, and I thought for not for a while, I thought like, oh, to be lean, is this what it takes? Like my mind was always preoccupied with food and I hated that. Um, but then I um, started to think in terms of more moderation and variety. Mm -hmm. I can talk about that change later, but basically when I say helping myself, I don't want to just say, um, oh, I lost a lot of weight and I feel great about myself because yeah. being healthy isn't just losing weight and um, sure. you know, being lean or, you know, looking like you think you should. Um, I think, you know, there is a part where you want to be fit, but like helping myself wasn't just being thin. It was also getting out of this mindset that was like super obsessed with like yeah. what I thought health was. It's that's really interesting because I think so many women struggle with yeah. that. It's, it's you know, um, I mean, I've struggled with it over the years as well, and pretty much all my friends have at some point too. Yeah. Um, but you're right; it's not just about losing weight and how you look. It's a, it's a lot to do with how you uh, feel about yourself, accepting yourself, having a healthy approach to food. So let's go on and talk about your your philosophy around health and well-being. I believe you have created something called the four pillars. Yeah. So that's what you talk about. Uh, so can you tell us what that's all about? Yeah, of course. Um, I wouldn't call myself like a deeply religious person, but a lot of Japanese culture has values that are derived from religion a lot. And, you know, I think a lot of Japanese culture is based off Shinto too, but also Buddhism. And within Buddhism, there's a lot of, um, a lot of the focus is on balance and moderation and not taking things to extremes to find, like that balance in your life is what will bring joy and wellness into yours. And so kind of growing up on that philosophy, I thought, okay, well, if I'm thinking about my health, it's not just, you know, eating vegetables and getting regular exercise, but what else is involved? And I think just doing a lot of research on um, very healthy societies in Japan. So thinking about um, Okinawa, for example, and they have a concept called Ikigai, um, which is like you need purpose, and um, but you also need community. And it, being healthy is also about having the social connection. And so mm -hmm. when I think about well-being, it's not just, um, you know, eating well and moving, but 
then I thought about the social aspect and how um, feeling connected with others is really important to her health and also getting a lot of rest. I think a lot of, I don't want to say modern society, but I do think um, it's like a weird trend to experience burnout, tell people you're really pushing yourself. And especially um, if you're like in your 20s, 30s, um, or early 40s, it's, you know, if you put everything into your career, like that, I don't, it's praised, but I'm thinking it's not really sustainable. And I know people who have devoted themselves to work and are very unhappy. Um, and I've, it's reflected in their health as well. So the four pillars is, yeah, yeah basically to move and nourish, which is to eat in a way that feeds your body. Um, but it's also about socializing and resting. So you want to make sure the way you eat and your relationship with food um, can also bring a social aspect to your life. You want to be able to sleep well um, and make sure you're taking the time to recover. Yes, and all those four pillars are uh, very intimately related, yeah. I would say. If you start doing one of those things well, for example, if you start exercising, then you think, oh, well, I'd you know, be good if I could sleep well as well and eat well, and they all feed into each other. So yeah. um, yes, you're right. It's not just one thing. It's, it's a, an approach. And you also mentioned that uh, a lot of people are really busy these days and, and they neglect some of those pillars and, and burn out. And I think that's really true. And that sense of moderation is sometimes it's just lost. So it's good to take the time and reset and yeah. think about all aspects of well-being. And as part of that, what you've done is created your blog, um, Kakikata um, Japanese Wellness Blog. Yeah. And I just so people listening to this know, I came across your articles in the Medium Digest, mm -hmm. which I subscribe to and it, it sends me um, articles every day and I came across your articles and I was really drawn to them immediately because, well, I love Japan, I love Japanese food and also you do beautiful illustrations, which you do yourself. Thank you. And we'll talk about that um, in a little while. But I thought just to give the listeners a flavour of some of the things you write about, I'll just mention a few titles of articles so they can get um, a sense. So you've written one called The Psychology Behind Why Japanese People Are So Healthy. You've written another one, How Do Retired Sumo Wrestlers Lose Weight? And also another one, One Soup, Three Size, The Japanese Art of Eating Healthfully. So I love the titles of, of your articles and what you actually write about. So what was your inspiration or why did you decide to start your blog? I think when I write, when I first started writing, I wasn't even thinking about writing for other people, but it was that I'd had these experiences and I wanted a place to just write them down. Um, I think I'd come across these really interesting ideas about wellness and health and how other people or other communities even have approached it. And I thought, wow, these are really incredible. Um, and I, I kind of kept them as a self-reminder maybe, or to organize my own thoughts. So. Medium's a great platform because um, there's basically no barriers to access. It's just you type and publish. Um, and I felt that 
and I like me I would I started out as a reader but I would read on medium I'd see what other people wrote and um kind of inspired what they did so I started doing my own writing um I'd say it was more yeah I wrote it kind of like a journal entry um even um but eventually I would get you know some claps some comments and <laughs> from then it was like wow um I'm not the only one who could benefit from this information um and so I, now I put in more effort to try and make sure it's really helpful for other people and I know eating well is just it's not easy um it people can make it seem really simple but um I know that for some people it's a really big struggle and if I could put anything out there to help those people um from my own experience and you know I wouldn't wish poor health on anyone I think it's just one of the worst things you could deal with and um if you know I know it's not a one size fits all kind of situation but if mm. I could take my own experience and even help a few people um kind of change the way they eat their relationship with food and the way they take care of their own health I think you know it just makes it really worthwhile I agree and I love the fact that you can draw on both western and japanese cultures because you can for example take some of the excellent approaches in japan and write it in such a way that people in the western societies understand yeah. what you're saying so I think that's a real skill that you have let's talk about the food culture in Japan because it is very famous for its food culture and everywhere around the world these days there are Japanese restaurants and I mean sushi has really become totally mainstream yeah <laughs> you know these days um I'm not sure how authentic some of it is but in, in a sense that doesn't matter it's you know it's things that people love to eat and it's certainly a lot healthier than some of the other readily available foods out there so the Japanese population in general, as you've alluded to, is generally healthier than um, a lot of other countries. It has the longest life expectancy and the lowest obesity rate of the OECD countries. And much of that is attributed to its healthy diet. Um, so let's talk about the elements of a Japanese meal. Kaki, can you explain to us how a typical Japanese meal is made up, how it's presented and what the elements are of a traditional Japanese style meal? Yeah, um, I would, I frame it in the sense that if you're looking at a very traditional sort of meal set, it'd be in a form called Ichiji Sansei, which literally translates to one soup, three sides. Um, but basically the one soup would be a variation of miso soup um, and then mm -hmm. the three sides would be two vegetable-based dishes and then one that's protein-based. If you're thinking very traditional, this is usually a piece of grilled fish. But if you're thinking today, that could be chicken, it could be pork, it could be tofu. And then this is all served with rice. And are there rituals surrounding eating food? I know um, a lot of people, for example, might say, grace before they eat in the US? Is there a similar thing in Japan? I, I don't know. I'm just curious. I, every time before I eat something I'll say, or people at the table say, it's itadakimasu, um, which translates to, if, it, if it's a little translation, it's like, oh, I'm going to 
I guess it's like I'm receiving this meal um, in a literal translation, but I think in a sense, it's more like, oh, thank you for this meal. It's a phrase which kind of covers um, your gratitude for the person who made that meal. And then when you're done with the meal, you'll say, sama, which means like, oh, um, that's like, thank you is delicious just to kind of end um, the meal. But that's something I always say before and after. Yeah. It's nice to stop just before you start eating and, and just be grateful for the food. Is that a phrase, is the phrase uh, something that no one would start eating until that's been said and acknowledged? Yeah, I think especially I try not to eat alone. I like to eat with other people. And um, especially if someone else made the meal, I'd want to wait until they're seated as well. Um, so everyone at the table can start eating at the same time. Yeah, And itadakimasu is something that kind of Grant, grounds everyone at the table um, in the beginning to start off a meal. <laughs> That's really lovely. And another thing about Japanese food I think that people would like to hear about are there there are definite ingredients that make it unique. So, for example, miso. Yeah. Um, what are some of the other things that you would say are typical or popular Japanese ingredients? I think if you're thinking about Japanese food, there's, um, in addition to miso, You'd also have soy sauce. Um, you'd also have mm -hmm. dashi, which is, um, it comes in several forms. Um, I like to use a powdered form um, just because it's, I find it most convenient. It also comes in liquid, but it's a fish stock, fish and kombu stock. Um, they take kombu, kelp, um, and uh, dried bonito. And then these two ingredients are fermented, but they boil that water and it creates a stock, which is a base for a lot of yeah. Japanese food. Then I think about sake. Um, it's used in a lot of Japanese food. It's rice wine. And um, mirin is like a combination of sake and sugar. And um, mm -hmm. yeah, combining these ingredients in different forms gives you like um, mensu, which is like a noodle soup base or yeah, there are just different ways to combine it. But I would say, yeah, sake, soy sauce, miso, and dashi are pretty much the base of a lot of Japanese cooking. And what about sea vegetables, like <laughs> seaweed? Because that's a, I mean, in the West, we kind of think that's one of the major ingredients in <laughs> Japan. Is, is it? <laughs> yeah, no. Um, it's funny because when I was young, like, you know, before Japanese food was popular, I brought like these little, I brought these little rice balls to, you know, school. And I went to a public school in New York. Um, There's like maybe two other Asians in my grade. So it was, you know, not a very diverse community, but I brought these rice balls, it had wakame in it, which is another variation of seaweed. And mm -hmm. the kids would just be like, oh my God, what is that? Like, it's so crazy looking, like, <laughs> And then I was like, oh, it's seaweed. And they'd be like, people eat seaweed. And at the moment, it's kind of hurtful. But, you know, growing up, I'm kind of like, oh, I didn't realize that seaweed was such a Asian thing. So I was just growing up. It's now like, oh, that's like kind of shocking. But anyways, um, yes, sea vegetables are a big part of Japanese cooking. Um, yeah. I encourage anyone to who's interested to start cooking with them there super rich in umami, which is a savory flavor. So they bring a lot of taste to 
uh, vegetable-based fishes. And also they're just super rich in minerals, um, especially one that I know a lot of people, or this, is, this might be too like nitty gritty, but um, they're really rich. One mineral that a lot of people don't get enough of is iodine. And sea vegetables are just a really great way yeah. to get that. So um, I always, and because they're dry and they're, you know, just come in little packets, it's just very easy to add to rice, add to soup. Um, yes. And so I encourage everyone to use it. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Because in the past, a lot of us obtained iodine from uh, things that had been grown in the soil. Yeah. It was part of the soil, but that's been depleted in many countries. So we that's one of the reasons that table salt has been iodized worldwide mm -hmm. because of that. But if we can obtain iodine from sea vegetables, that's another excellent source and it tastes good. This is a quick interlude to update you on my latest book review of The Inner Self, The Joy of Discovering Who We Really Are by Hugh McKay, a well-known Australian author and social psychologist. The book takes us on a soul-searching journey, encouraging us to understand ourselves and realise that our capacity for love and compassion is the essence of what it means to be human. It's an insightful and hopeful book and perfect, I think, for our times. The review is posted on the book reviews page on my website, so please have a look, and I will put a link in the show notes. Also, if you would like to buy the book, you can click on the Amazon button on my website. Should you choose to do that, I will receive a small commission as an Amazon associate and thank you very much if you do. So back to my chat with Kaki Okamura. I just had a memory of when I was last in Tokyo with my family and we wanted to have a really authentic ramen um, meal. Yeah. So we went to the concierge in the hotel and she pulled out this amazing map of all the ramen restaurants that were near the hotel. And it was just, <laughs> we had the best night. <laughs> we found this gorgeous little place. We couldn't really communicate, but it, luckily they had those menus with pictures mm -hmm. on them. So we could just point. And it was, to this day, it rem remains one of our most remembered family meals. We absolutely loved it. Uh, what area were you staying um, in? We were in where the the old fish market was before it's it's moved. Okay. So now, around Tsukiji, maybe Ginza? Yes. Okay. Yeah. We talked about the way Japanese people approach their food and we talked a little bit about diet and losing weight. And there is a lot of press I guess these days about quick fix diets and all sorts of things mm -hmm. um, but personally I've always thought a really important aspect of eating healthily and weight loss is noticing how you feel mm -hmm. when you eat rather than obsessively tracking things like calories or macros and whatever. Basing how, how much you eat and what you eat on how you feel is something that many of us have lost touch with, I think. But there is a Japanese approach that is really addresses this issue. And can you say it? Because I don't want to get it wrong. How do you, Harahachibunme? <laughs> oh, yeah. How do you say it? Uh, Harahachibunme, but yeah, <laughs> Harahachibunme. Harahachi bunmei. So, yeah. Kaki, can you explain to us what what that is, what that philosophy, I guess, for want of a better word, is? Yeah. Um, well, it translates directly to 80% full stomach. So basically, you don't want to 
I mean, the whole idea of it is moderation that you shouldn't eat until you're like completely yeah. full. Um, but you shouldn't also feel restricted. And they kind of, the phrase kind of captures that feeling of, hey, you're 80% full, you're satisfied, um, you feel like you've eaten, but you're not like 100% like, oh my God, I've eaten too much. Um, and it's about this idea that every meal should be about just moderately eating whatever um, meal you're enjoying. Do you have any uh, tips for people on perhaps how they can try and achieve that and be in touch with how they feel? Yeah. Do you have a personal approach you take to that? Yeah, I think it's very important to um, choose foods which are filling. If, you know, if you're eating snacks, there's just, or just, you know, bread, it's really difficult to feel 80% full because you're not getting the amount mm. of fiber, you're not getting um, the amount of fat and protein that you need to feel fullness. Um, so obviously this Hara Hachibume concept only really works when you're eating foods that will make you feel full. Um, and also I think, you know, I don't eat with my laptop open. I don't eat with my phone out um, if I am alone. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I try and get most of the meals. I try and share it with someone. Um, having a meal with another person with conversation slows us down. Um, it keeps yeah. us within it, you know, we just don't eat as fast. We're not like, okay, 10 minutes and then we're done. Um, you're, you know, having a drink and just taking breaks in between um, can really make a difference in, you know, reaching this point of 80% full. Yes. I mean, that makes sense from a physiological point of view too, because it does take a while for the message from the stomach that you're full to register to your brain. So if you are eating with someone else and you're talking and not rushing your meal, that gives your body time to register that it's had 80%. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a, you know, especially if you're new to the idea and you've spent a lot of time just um, eating too much or not eating enough, you kind of lose touch with this idea of what 80% full will feel like. So if, you're someone who's first trying to adopt the idea. It, it'll, I think it'll take some time. It'll take some trial and error. You'll find moments where you'll be like, oh, I ate too much or, you know, um, it's 30 minutes later, I'm already hungry. But, you know, with enough consistency, like you'll be able to understand like, oh, this is what 80% full is feeling like. Yeah, I think that's a really lovely way to approach eating because it's it's about enjoying the food and thinking about it and and not being too restrictive on yourself in terms of, you know, if you want to enjoy a treat, then, you know, enjoy it. And in fact, that is one of the things you wrote about in, uh, you wrote an article about centennials, I believe, and the people that, you know, obviously are still healthy and active and have lived a long life. And there was something quite surprising that you found when you spoke to them. And perhaps you can tell us what that was. Yeah, well, I think, you know, when you ask someone like, hey, or, you know, you're ask a centennial, a lot of people are like, you know, you want to know like how they live so well for such a long time. Um, And so naturally a question you want to ask is like, you know, what'd you eat? How'd you eat? And instead of being like, oh, I only ate 
you know, this vegetable at this time of day and um, I eliminated whatever, like their responses were more, you know, like I enjoyed what I eat. I like, I like sushi, I like sweets. And um, the focus was just on this joy of eating. They found it yeah. as something that kind of added to their life and something that they look forward to instead of like the stressful thing that they had to like, you know, manage and take care of and really obsess over every day. Yeah, I think one of the things you said, one of the quotes was eating delicious things and sleeping well. Yeah. <laughs> and another one said, eating delicious things is a key to my longevity. So <laughs> that's a wonderful way to live, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> another thing I thought would be interesting to touch on just briefly is the Japanese approach to eating meat. Um, it tends to be a little bit different from, uh, I guess, the typical U.S. or Australian approach. So perhaps you can tell us about that. Yeah. You know, I don't know if it came from like a just a need because we're an island and it's expensive to import meat or expensive to raise it. But um, Japanese people don't eat a lot of meat. I think they eat it often, but they don't eat a lot of it when they do. And so it often comes thinly sliced um, if you do have meat. And if you go to a supermarket, you'll have a very difficult time finding big steaks or big pork chops. Um, if you do want it, you need to like go to the counter and ask them to cut it specially for you and have it reserved. Um, mostly they just come in these packs where they're thinly sliced and in one, a one serving of meat is not considered a lot. You think about one portion of meat, it'll be also served, if it's served in an Ichiji Sansai style, it's the meat with a bunch of vegetables and rice and soup. So mm. you just don't end up eating that much. Yeah, I think it's probably true of other Asian cultures as well. I mean, China comes to mind here. It's the meat is a flavoring of the dish. It's mm -hmm. not the front and center. In a lot of, um, I guess, US style meals, there'll be a large piece of protein and the vegetables are just, you know, some sad little things on the side. <laughs> Whereas I think in Japan, it's a little bit, uh, it's, a, it's balanced a different way. The meat, it, it's there, but it's more flavoring rather than being front and center. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so Kaki, on your website, you have cooking videos and I think people can buy recipe cards for these. So what inspired you to make the cooking videos? I could write about Japanese food and I could draw about it, but at the end of the day, people are like, they email me and they go, hey, do you have recipes? Like, how do I make this? I want to adopt this kind of food. And I just thought the most helpful way to do that would just to be like, have a video where you can just watch the whole process and then just a recipe yeah. where you can, you know, get all the ingredients and the instructions for it so you can see exactly how it's made. Um, I think, yeah, it's just the best way to teach people. Yeah, I agree. It's nice having a visual option. So uh, just give us an, a few examples of some of the recipes that you have available on your website. I try and definitely, I do a vegetable focus. I think, I don't know if this is everyone's experience. I don't want to, but in a general sense, when I was living in the US, I think a lot of people just didn't know how to cook with vegetables. Um, it was a lot of just like olive oil, salt and pepper or butter. And, you know, that was just put thrown in an oven and, you know, vegetables were always served to me like that. And I was I came to Japan, I found like thousands of ways 
people cook and incorporate vegetables into their meals. So that being said, I try and focus on vegetable dishes. I try and also keep them easy, their home cooking style, nothing too complicated. Things like oshitashi, which directly translates to um, something simmered. So I think as like a recipe for spinach oshitashi, I also taught, um, I think I also do some grilled ones in like sesame oil and aonori, which is also another yeah. type of sea vegetable. Um, I try and put in lots of different kinds of vegetables. So not just broccoli and carrots, but um, a lot of different kinds of mushrooms. So shimeji mushrooms, enoki, those are very popular Japanese vegetables. Um, also lotus root and daikon is also very, um, Yum. yeah, it's mm. Japanese long radish um, in English, but um, I try and do a lot of vegetables like that and also serve different ways. So if it's not simmered, it'll be grated. So um, I also posted a video where you would grate down the daikon and kind of use it as a condiment or a topping to a different grilled vegetable or something, um, just so you have different flavors and consistencies within one dish. Thank you. And I'll put a link <laughs> to that in the show notes. But one thing that is uh, very obvious about the Japanese and, as you mentioned before, Okinawan diet is the variety of vegetables that yeah. people eat. <laughs> or I was going to say that just looking or reading about the Okinawan diet, there's I think there's a lot of dimensions to their culture that makes it such a healthy uh, society. But one thing that, you know, just really stood out is the number of types of vegetables that they ate every day. It was, um, I believe the number is seven. On average, they'd have seven different kinds of vegetables every day. And, you know, I think just having variety is just as important as having a lot of vegetables every day. Yep. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I mentioned earlier that you illustrate your blog articles yourself. And I also believe that you can people can commission work from you. So where did you learn to tell us a little bit about your illustrations and also where you learnt to um, illustrate and paint? Um, yeah, I don't think I've always been kind of a creative person. I love to draw and I love to paint you know, ever since I was young. So I don't think I've really learned, learned from anywhere, but just a lot of it was just in my free time. I like to draw and it seemed kind of natural when I started writing that I wanted to supplement them with illustrations. Um, I think a lot about, you know, I, I love Ghibli. Um, I draw a lot of inspiration from the way they present stories. And I liked how yeah. um, just the art could complement you know, stories and character arcs so well. And so I draw a lot of inspiration from that. Um, but my illustrations are just, you know, something, they're like self-indulgent. I just like to draw and I like to share them with people. So I put them onto my stories. <laughs> well, I love them because the other thing that I don't know whether this was intentional or not, but what it does, to, I think, is it makes your stories stand out because most people just stick a stock photo in there, <laughs> but yours have got these beautiful illustrations and I was just so drawn to them immediately uh, when I saw. So I think they're gorgeous. And as I said before, you uh, people can commission works from you. So what kind of things do you do in that space? Yeah, um, you know, sometimes it's just 
someone reaches out to me and they just want me to draw something for them. So I like to have them introduce themselves. They kind of share a little bit of information about what they liked about my writing um, and, you know, what their dreams or hopes are, um, what they value in life. And then kind of derived off that, I try to come up with a illustration that they might like and kind of remind them of those things that are important to them. Recently, I've gotten, yeah, just requests for cookbook illustrations. So someone had a collection of family recipes. They wanted to, you know, put them together into something really nice. So, but instead of photos, they wanted to do illustrations. And so they asked me, so I'd com they'd commission me and I'd, you know, I'd read the recipe. They might send some photos and they'll um, redo them as watercolor paintings. And is that cookbook? Japanese food? No, it's it... not necessarily Japanese food. It's just it's just like a family collection of recipes yeah. that they collect. Like a private yeah. thing. I think we should probably wrap up soon. So Kaki, can you tell us who inspires you? It's like I read this question when you sent them to me and <laughs> um I thought about it because it's unfair to name just one or two names because you know I rely on a lot of people for support and and feel a lot of gratitude for them um but to just list some names you know I can talk about my parents I could talk about my grandma um my friends are my role models but to put up yeah. some names that I think would be helpful for listeners that I think are really great examples of leadership one is Michael Anthony he is the executive um chef at Gramercy Tavern in New York City mm -hmm. um the reason, I mean, I knew, um, I knew about him before, but um, I really found myself inspired by his leadership when I, I just, I post things on Instagram and then he liked something and I was like, oh my God, I know this man. This is incredible. Um, and I messaged him like, thank you. Like, I just wanted to ask like, how'd you find me? And, you know, he was just gracious enough to, I'm, he's very busy and he took the time to respond to my message. And I was like, hey, I also write, I'd love to interview you. And he was like, yeah, sure. So, you know, we scheduled a call, I interviewed him, I made it into an article. And, you know, that article was a lot of fun for me. And he also just shared a lot about his life. He studied cooking in Japan for a bit. Um, he talked about his mentors. He talked about how he got into industry. Um, his work is a lot about not just serving like really fancy, expensive food, but it's also about educating people about home cooking, eating lots of vegetables. Yeah. Um, he's involved in a lot of nonprofit work. And so he talked about his philosophy surrounding that. And, you know, I, I respond well to leadership that revolves around kindness and giving back. And I think yeah. he's just a great example of that. And, and, you know, his support has been so much to me. Um, thinking about another person is um, Simon Sinek. I don't know if I'm say saying his last name right. Oh, yeah. But um, another... I don't know either, but I know exactly who you mean. <laughs> um, he's also someone I look up to. I look up to a lot. I don't have a personal relationship with him, but I think it was, it was like back in high school, I wrote him a letter. I, I lived in Japan. I wrote him a letter and I was like, I read his book, Start With Why, and I was really inspired by it. And I, you know, I just thanked him for his work. And I sent, I sent him a postcard, like within the letter, there's a blank postcard. And I was like, 
And I wrote my address, put on a stamp. I was like, hey, if you could sign this and send it back to me, I'd love to just paste in my book and my copy. And it was kind of a blind chance. I like, I'm like, he's a big celebrity. I don't know if he'll have time for this. I sent him the letter. And then maybe like a few months later, I get this package basically back. And inside he has a signed copy of his book. So he didn't just send the postcard. He just gave me another copy of the book. He also sent another, um, he sent a copy of his newer book, uh, Together is Better. It's like a picture book, but he signed that. He also sent like a letter set um, and like had a message on it. And to me, that was just crazy. And, you know, I know he's super famous and he talks a lot about leadership and what it means to be a good leader. And there, I think there are plenty of people who can just talk about it and, you know, say that they're trying to inspire change, but to have someone mm. do that for someone who, you know, he, he's never met me. He doesn't know what I do. And then he just, you know, took the time to send that back. Yeah, that, was just incredible. That's a gorgeous story. It's very kind, isn't it? Because from his point of view, as you say, he's busy and well-known, but that, the, the, the fact that he actually took the time made a huge impact on you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a small act on his part can spread a lot of positivity. Yeah. So that's a lovely answer. Kaki, my final question, and I like to ask this to all my guests, yeah. and you're a perfect one to answer <laughs> this. If you could recommend two things that all people could do to improve their well-being, what would they be? Um, it's hard when you've got four <laughs> pillars. <laughs> I know. Um, I think... To even put in a more general sense, I think even before thinking about the four pillars, one thing that you really, that makes a huge difference is surrounding yourself with people who are supportive of your health goals can make all the difference because sometimes, you know, just taking care of yourself is a lot, but if you have an outside opinion, he'll push you when you need to be pushed, but, you know, Mm. be there to comfort you when you need to be comforted. Um, I think when we're talking about our health, a lot of people already kind of know what they need to work on. Like they know they need to eat more vegetables. They know they need to exercise more, but instead of doing that on your own, having someone to support you, surrounding yourself with people who are very encouraging, who um, want to see you do well, I think that makes all the difference in your success. So um, if you know, I was to recommend with something, it's very just find people who, you know, support you, surround yourself with good people, especially if you're having a hard time, because doing it with others is just a lot easier than doing it yourself. I guess I could talk about the four pillars, you know, you want to eat vegetables, you want to move, you want to sleep. But if I were to recommend one thing, it's just um, focus on doing small thing every single day. Even if it's, you don't need to run for an hour to get your exercise in for the day. It can just be like a walk you wouldn't have taken otherwise or taking the stairs when you otherwise would have done the elevator or, you know, an extra serving of broccoli um, with your meal. You don't need to do like a beautiful spread of something amazing, but just being more aware of these four pillars and doing one thing each day to kind of support it, I think is what I'd recommend. That's right. Taking small steps is often the best approach if you're trying to change habits because otherwise if you're trying to 
do too much at once, it become it can become overwhelming. So yeah. um, surround yourself with supportive people and take small steps every day towards your health. Yeah. I think that's what you're saying. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much for coming on my podcast. It's been a real thrill to chat with you today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, this was a lot of fun. I'm so glad you reached out. And that was Japanese lifestyle blogger Kaki Okamura. Thank you very much for listening today and I do hope you found today's interview interesting or inspiring. If you did, please share the podcast with your friends and take a minute to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and it will help people find my podcast. If you would like to subscribe to my podcast, Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, you can subscribe on all good podcast providers like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast and Google Podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast and check out my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com. You can contact me via the website and please suggest topics you'd like to learn more about and people you'd like to hear interviewed and I will do my best to deliver that to you. Producing the podcast is a labour of love. It has become my full-time job and I dedicate a lot of time, money and effort towards it. If you enjoy my podcast and would like to support it, I would be so grateful. You can make contributions via my Patreon page or via PayPal from the support page on my website. I'll put a link in the show notes, so please do check it out. Another way you can support my podcast, as I have mentioned, is by purchasing a book through the book reviews page on my website. Thank you very much for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.